Welcome to Real Footnotes, the podcast where we take stories from the margins and put them on the front page. I'm Jeff. And I'm Brian. And our fifth episode is batshit crazy. And I mean that literally. Well, technically, it's actually the story is going to be bird shit crazy, but bat shit, I understand, is just catchier. Way, way catchier. And that just means that also that we get to steal clips from Pet Detective 2, which movie from our childhood. I shouldn't say steal. Let's say borrow with... Uh, an almost certainly naive understanding of fair use. Jesus, Jeff, we know how litigious Jim Carrey is and that he's a pretty good lawyer, or at least a good liar. You know what I mean. Liar, liar. That's that's what I'm driving at. Yeah, I understood, you fucking nerd. Anyways, as we said in our mini-sode, this episode is kind of a sequel to the Fritz Auber story. So if you haven't listened to our previous episode and are a stickler for strict continuity... No! Then go back and listen to it, but honestly, it doesn't really matter. In the last minisode, we played a couple of clips from a conversation I had with Greg Cushman, an environmental historian at the University of Kansas. Greg literally wrote the book on guano, and it's called Guano and the Opening of the Pacific World. So I reached out to him, and he was very generous with his time and thoughtful in his responses to my questions. So a big thanks to Greg up front. Definitely, definitely. And if you listen to the mini-sode, you also heard Greg, or is it Dr. Cushman? Anyway, I think it's safe to say (laughs) that this is a pretty informal podcast, so let's go with Greg. So in the mini-sode, you heard Greg challenge the way that we describe the global impact of the Haber-Bosch process. The Haber-Bosch process actually didn't spread very much beyond Germany and a little bit of use in the United States until you get to the era of World War II. Those comments are a big reason why we're doing this episode, to look beyond the context of just Germany and the United States and talk about some alternative sources of nitrates. And as we go through the episode, you'll hear more excerpts of Brian and Greg's conversation. And I need to apologize because occasionally you might hear a little bit of me clicking (laughs) during the interview that was me taking notes. Oh, I thought you were speaking the Hosa language and you were like... (laughs) Like, you're making clicks. (laughs) I hope that was right. I hope Hosa was right, and I hope I just didn't insult a huge group of people. Anyways, as promised, our story starts with two pre-Auber sources of nitrates, both found in unparalleled quantities in Western South America. First, in massive guano islands off the coast of Peru. Guano! That sounds so familiar. Bat droppings. We warned you that that was coming. Apparently, in Quechua, which is the Andean language from which the word originally comes, guano just meant any kind of shit. So there was fish guano, there was alpaca guano, there was even human guano. But sometime in the 19th century, the word just meant shit of either marine birds or bats. The other major source of nitrates was a massive accumulation of salt in the extremely dry Atacama Desert. Now that salt is called sodium nitrate or Chilean saltpeter. And when the guano boom ended in the 1870s, Chilean saltpeter dominated the nitrate market for the next 50 years. To understand how valuable these naturally occurring forms of nitrates were, it's important to understand how people use them. Here's Greg again. Nitrates aren't just valuable for fertilizer. They are the primary ingredient used in um, producing gunpowder and nitroglycerin explosives and all modern explosives and sulfuric acid. So just about everyone wanted a piece of that very lucrative pie. Peru's guano boom mostly ended because they overexploited the resource. They had no strategy for conservation. It was like a gold rush, but with shit. So a shit rush. Now that idea of a shit rush, if you can believe it, got us thinking about the inherent fragility of single resource economies. And by that, I mean countries or regions that overwhelmingly extract or produce one resource and then typically export it for foreign consumption. Right now, the most obvious 
obvious examples of single resource economies are those that extract, sometimes refine, and export oil. We sometimes call them petrostates like Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, or the UAE. But what happens when the oil runs out? At least birds keep on shitting, but oil is finite. Or what happens when someone invents a cheaper alternative? The basic idea is that these countries would, well, be fucked. Unless, of course, they take measures to insulate their economies from those kind of shocks. They could invest a portion of their resource revenue into infrastructure, social development, or divert it into other sectors to help diversify their economy. Or they could simply set aside some resource cash for a rainy day. And by rain, I mean a catastrophe and not just in an economic sense. After Harvey, I bet Houston wishes oh, that it set aside a bit more of its oil money aside. Well, too soon, Brian. I'm actually kidding. We need to have a serious conversation in this country about the relative costs of prevention and recovery in an increasingly uncertain climate. Okay, let's get back on track, Jeff. I know, I know. But just let me talk about integrated water resources management for a few, well, maybe 10 or 11 minutes. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're not getting into that. Okay, fine. So... In this episode, we're going to start by describing and comparing Peru and Chile's nitrate booms. The Peruvians literally mine the shit out of their offshore nitrate wealth and enrich the country's elites and foreign investors. That natural wealth was mostly sent abroad while the profits were squandered and pilfered at home. The Chileans seized their neighbors' lands and then proceeded to figuratively mine the shit out of the Atacama Desert. But Chile used some of that resource wealth to modernize and diversify its economy, which helped them weather the production of industrial alternatives and a steep reduction in demand. It almost sounds like a parable with a very simple lesson. What, steal your neighbor's shit and invest it wisely? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is exactly it. That's what Chile did. So after we tell the Peruvian guano and Chilean saltpeter stories, we'll then discuss the petroleum-driven economies of Venezuela, Alberta, Canada, and Norway. We'll compare how each prepared for a future oil market crash and how they actually fared when the price of oil collapsed from $106 a barrel in June 2014 to only $47 a barrel six months later. The big idea we want to tackle is how should a resource-dependent country strategically invest its natural wealth? What's the best way to protect their economies from unanticipated market fluctuation? In particular, we're going to consider sovereign wealth funds as one potential solution. Emphasis on potential because, as always, I doubt we're going to agree in the end. Jeff, the argumentative vassal, is back. Next on Real Footnotes. Our first story is about Peru and its incredible wealth of bird shit or guano found on a series of small islands off the country's southwest coast. Beginning in the mid-1800s, Peru was the center of a worldwide guano boom. That's a weird expression. A worldwide guano boom. It truly is. But a big problem with managing a natural resource in high demand like guano or oil for that matter is that there's only so much of it. Well, guano is technically replenishable. As long as the birds are alive, they're going to keep on shitting. But birds and their habitat need protection. It takes time and conservation measures for the guano to slowly reaccumulate. But the problem with oil reserves is that they're effectively a non-renewable resource. The time scale is just too long to restore the stock. So it's not a perfect analogy. Fair enough. But without conservation, both resources are effectively limited. 
Oh, true. Peru's guano is mostly found on the Chincha Islands. The Chinchas are a set of granite outcroppings found about 20 kilometers or 12 miles off Peru's coast. These islands are home to a vast population of nesting seabirds, and over the course of thousands of years, they remarkably transform these rocks. Year after year, day after day, hour after hour, seabirds fished off the coast and shit all over the islands. She. Over millennia, that bird excrement kept piling up until it reached heights of more than 100 feet. Towers of bird shit rising out of the Pacific Ocean. We said that we were going to try and put shit back in history, so let's talk about guano for a bit. Like Greg Cushman said, scholars tend to treat guano like any other commodity, but it's not any other commodity. It's bird shit. So let's get a little scatological. Yeah, let's have a scat chat. I'm a scat man! <laughs> So shit is considered impolite to talk about in our culture, but maybe it can tell us something about the human condition. Even if it's impolite, shit is fascinating and hilarious. It is. <laughs> I agree. Case in point, shitting your pants is always super funny. <laughs> yeah, shit permeates our humor and our language. Even our pants. <laughs> now, speak, speak for yourself, for Brian. <laughs> Way too often. <laughs> Anyways, let me give you some examples of how we use shit in our language. We call people shitheads, pieces of shit, shit for brains. We often say people are full of shit, and sometimes that can lead to shitty situations. We also don't give a shit, and we definitely know our shit, even if we forgot our shit, which leaves us in deep shit. Man, we really need to get our shit together. Yeah, no shit. But we're not just talking about shit as a metaphor. We're talking about physical excrement, biological material that's been expelled from the digestive system of an animal. Yeah, and if you take a closer look at shit, it can provide clues about the diet and health of its former owner. That is, unless you're a fecophiliac and totally wait, obsessed what? with shit. <laughs> what's, wait, what's a fecophiliac? Someone who's obsessed with shit or, like, gets off from shit. No. So, like, someone taking a dump on your chest, for example. Oh, is this a, is this a condition you're familiar with, Brian? I'm not familiar with it per se, but I am familiar with the concept. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, when it comes to fertilizer, the smell and yes, even the texture can be important signifiers of quality. It was important how guano smelt and felt, smelt and felt, because <laughs> that's... Smelt and felt. He smelt and felt it. <laughs> okay. Anyways... Because that sensory information actually told them something about the properties of the product. For most of human history, shit was immediately present in people's lives. But in the developed world, we've confined it to the bathroom and sewer system. The ongoing management of human shit is crucial to the construction of the modern world. Infrastructure for its removal is a major organizing force in modern cities, so it structures our lives in important, if sometimes inconspicuous ways. And as we began to hide our shit from public view, we also removed it from polite conversation. But as the potty training book says, everybody poops and our lives and culture are structured in part around that most basic of human activities. So like it or not, we're mired in shit. Similarly, you can't understand guano without talking about the birds that produce it, as well as the climate and geography of the places where it's typically found. As a fellow environmental historian, I couldn't let Brian interview Greg Cushman without asking, how do environmental factors structure the production and global distribution of guano? And here's Greg's response. The uh, forces of nature, the um, physical limitations posed by uh, natural processes, that these change over time, 
These vary over time, and those changes impact human activities in such a way that they, they limit what we can do, and by limiting us, compel us to act in certain ways and prevent us from acting in other, in other ways. In the case of the Pacific world, the clearest way in which nature has agency is through the activity of the El Nino phenomenon and the La Nina phenomenon. A uh, year-to-year oscillation in the temperature of um, ocean water in the Pacific and the way in which ocean currents flow and the way in which the atmosphere circulates and the way in which weather patterns form that are the difference between a place being a desert and a place being a lush forest. And uh, in the case of the ocean are the difference between there being an incredible abundance of fish and, and whales and seals and marine birds and guano and there being almost no production. Greg argued that nature has agency. It's not a conscious historical actor, but natural forces structure the production of guano and constrain how people use it. Now let me pause for a second to unpack this central idea in environmental history. When historians tell stories about people, they often neglect the environmental context. In the case of guano, Greg mentioned weather events like El Nino that either enable or disrupt the conditions that allow marine birds to thrive and allow people to extract guano. Human activity is always situated in a natural context, and these are so intertwined that it doesn't actually make a lot of analytical sense to talk about the built world and the natural world as distinct categories. Environmental historians take nature's historical agency seriously, but we also understand that nature is a social construct. Nature contains forces beyond our control, but our interpretation of these forces and our interaction with them are simultaneously shaped by our culture. Okay, let's get back on track with our story. Fair enough. Yeah, as we said, the Chincha Islands were unsurpassed in their quantity and quality of their guano, but it's also found in large amounts on islands off the coast of South Africa, and there are specific environmental reasons why it's found in these places. Here's Greg again. Those are by far the two most important locales where, where true avian guano was found in uh, very large quantities, and I might also add in quantities that had very rich nitrogen content. Uh, those are two two of the driest deserts in the entire world. So the nitrogen remained in the in the guana there because there was no rain to leach it out. There are lots of other islands with uh, large marine bird populations on them, but if there's a lot of rain, the rain leaches the nutrients out. So you find it next to deserts. And there's uh, two other places where you find guano are, are off the coast of Oman um, in the Arabian Peninsula. In a, a scattering of islands in the in the Western Pacific around Australia, and uh, lastly, the, a number of atolls in the Central Pacific, right along the equator. It's really interesting that being located in a desert climate is so important to the quality of guano because the Chincha Islands are so fucking dry. They're by far the most important and plentiful source of marine bird guano in the world. So long before the Europeans quote-unquote discovered it, the native Andean people understood the value of guano. In his book, The Alchemy of Air, Thomas Hager, our friend that we've never met, um, noted that the natives ranked guano alongside gold as the gods' most precious gifts, and they made the Chincha Islands a kind of holy sanctuary. In fact, the seabirds were considered so valuable that killing one was a capital offense in some Andean cultures. This was because they discovered that infusing their soils with guano significantly improved crop output. Think of it as cow manure on crack. Okay, uh, well this is, so in the case of Peru, uh, guano has been known to be 
a valuable fertilizer, at least from ancient times. There are um, effigy portrayals in moche pottery showing uh, guano islands, showing birds nesting on them, and actually artifacts have been found deep inside guano deposits down 60 feet in the in, inside of one of the deposits, showing that indigenous Peruvians were visiting these islands and were almost certainly extracting guano for use on their farms back at least 1,500 years, maybe, maybe even much longer than that. And certainly they were using it on prominent large scale at the time of the Spanish arrival in the 16th century, and they were still using it at the beginning of the 19th century all for local trade and uh, for uh, growing things like chiles. That's incredible. I mean, artifacts 60 feet down? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, but we're going to ignore that first millennium and a half because we're Eurocentric uh, and focus on the era where Europeans and Americans went bird shit crazy for Peruvian guano. We're talking about a time when everyone ate organic, but most people died at 40. It all started in 1802 when a Prussian naturalist named Alexander von Humboldt visited Peru and learned of a white substance that turned exhausted lamb fertile again. It sounds like Cushman. cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> he just pour a little cocaine yeah. on there. It's like, woo-wee! Oh. <laughs> Anyways, Cushman described that moment. And uh, when uh, Alexander von Humboldt, the Prussian naturalist, uh, passed uh, along the coast of Peru in 1802, he actually, he was... Uh, walking along the docks of the port of Callao, the port for the city of Lima, where he was waiting around to do some astronomical observations. And he walked so close to a couple of these barges filled with bird shit, the, the ammonia from it was so strong, he, he went into a fit of seasoning. And as a trained mining engineer and chemist, he realized immediately that this ammonia smell was uh, something really odd. Uh, and interesting from the point of view of chemistry. So he started talking to the people, you know, what is this stuff? Where does it come from? And took a bunch of samples of it with him back to Europe that then he uh, gave to his uh, scientific buddies to do chemical analysis. It's pretty amazing that just by smelling the guano on a barge, Humboldt understood that it was chemically interesting. Sharp dude. Yeah, that's why we know his name. <laughs> it's also a reminder that this is shit. Humboldt had a physiological reaction to the substance that wouldn't have happened if it had been timber or iron. Like going up smelling some iron ore and be like, ooh, that's some good iron ore we got there. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, like that would never happen, that little scenario that I just came up with. But you have to remember <laughs> that people were far more familiar with shit and its properties than they are today. Now, you may have heard of Humboldt for his amazing maps and illustrations that combine botany, geology, and meteorology, but maybe you haven't. Yeah, def definitely not. <laughs> well, many, I mean, he's famous. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The scientific buddies with whom he actually shared the guano samples found that this bird shit was extremely high in urea. Remember, that's what makes your pee smell. But nobody fully understood its potential, at least not at first. In 1805, Humphrey Davy, an English chemist and the founder of electrochemistry, received a guano sample and began to turn his considerable scientific genius to the study of manure and ways to increase soil productivity. In 1813, Davy collected a series of his lectures on nitrogen-based manures and published them in a widely read book. That book was targeted at an audience of gentlemen farmers who wanted to apply new scientific information to agricultural practice. Europeans, of course, already understood the value of manure as a fertilizer, but guano was something special. Like Humboldt's colleagues, Davy found that guano was high in nitrate and phosphates, 
and that it was an excellent fertilizer. Davy didn't actually understand how nitrates contributed to plant nutrition because a coherent theoretical understanding of the nitrogen cycle didn't actually emerge until the 1880s, but Davy had empirical data to suggest that these nitrogen-rich compounds improved agricultural productivity. So Humboldt and Davy understood that guano was useful and told interested European audiences but they couldn't foresee just how valuable it would become and the considerable logistical challenges of moving it around the globe. For Europeans, guano basically remained a foreign curiosity, but on an island in the middle of nowhere, that was about to change. Here's Greg again. Interestingly, the very first time anyone outside of Peru tried experimenting with using guano as a fertilizer didn't happen in the Northern Hemisphere. It actually happened on a tiny island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, St. Helena, where a um, progressive farmer who had just been appointed as the governor of the island was giving a message from a British scientist saying, hey, you know, you might want to check out uh, if there's any guano around your island because you're at the exact same latitude as the coast of Peru. And maybe because you're at the same latitude, you'll also have guano too. And if you do, you should try, try it out in your field because we've heard that it's one of the best fertilizers that exists in the world. And there actually was a bird island off of St. Helena, and he had his uh, slaves take um, a couple uh, boatloads of guano back to his uh, estate, and he put it on the grass around his manor and had the nicest lawn anyone had ever seen in the history of St. Helena. And he uh, filed a report about this, and that led uh, scientists and agricultural experimenters and improving farmers to uh, try to get a hold of uh, bits of guano to do experiments on. So guano's first non-Peruvian use happened on the same island where Napoleon was exiled in 1815 and died in 1821. Napoleon was likely there when guano was first used. Talk about a weird footnote. Yeah, it's kind of great. I love that. Uh, guano began to receive even wider attention after 1824 when an editorial in the magazine American Farmer praised this miracle manure with, quote, such astonishing fertilizing properties. Word spread about this incredible bird shit fertilizer, and demand began to rise in Europe and North America. By the 1840s, Peru began to feel the onset of a guano boom. Now, it's important to put that historical moment in a bit of context. Peru had just recently won its independence from Spain in 1821, and afterward, Peruvian military leaders fought amongst themselves, which led to a constant state of political instability. By the 1840s, the high demand for guano promised windfall profits and helped stabilize the country's politics under President Ramon Castilla. But guano also invited foreign interference. The Peruvian coast became a highly contested space marked by unfettered exploitation of resources and the workers who extracted them. It was a time and place where empires collided and their agents competed. In short, guano was both a blessing and a curse. Here's Cushman again, talking about the importance of the guano trade. In terms of getting the outside world interested in establishing extractive industries and extractive uh, forms of labor organization, guano was the most important thing. Whaling also being important along with this too. The Pacific world as we understand it was forged in an era where guano was king and resource hungry, hungry imperial powers, including a newly gluttonous hippo-like United States, quickly dominated <laughs> the international guano trade. 
Now, even before the guano boom, the United States saw the Americas as its own backyard. In 1823, U.S. President James Monroe declared an end to the European colonial scramble in the Western Hemisphere. His Monroe Doctrine declared that the United States viewed European political interference in the New World as a hostile act. Now, that was a pretty ballsy statement on behalf of James Monroe, because there was no way the U.S. could back that up. And Europe continued to interfere in the Americas for a long time to come. So the Monroe Doctrine was basically toothless, until Teddy Roosevelt gave it a big stick in 1904 by saying that the U.S. would directly intervene in any European conflict in the Americas. And now, it often intervened on the Europeans' behalf, but that's another story. Back in the 1840s, the imperial powers began to understand the strategic value of South American nitrates. And by 18 1850, the value of guano was so widely understood that U.S. President Millard Fillmore even mentioned it in his State of the Union address. Some Americans took matters into their own hands. For example, in 1854, a group of American privateers captured a guano island off the coast of Venezuela and claimed it as their own. The Venezuelan Navy, quite obviously, disagreed and forced <laughs> the Americans to flee. Two years after that, in 1856, Congress responded to this incident by passing the Guano Islands Act, which begins by declaring, quote, Whenever any citizen of the United States discovers a deposit of guano on any island, rock, or key, not within the lawful jurisdiction of any other government, and not occupied by the citizens of any other government, and takes peaceable possession thereof, and occupies the same, such island, rock, or key may, at the discretion of the president, be considered as appertaining to the United States. This act is so absurd. It's basically like if my wife, who's American, took a shit on an un <laughs> like a, a rock. A a, uh, oh, Ashley's going to really love this little bit, Ryan. Do continue. Don't say my wife's <laughs> name. <laughs> no, but think about that. If there's an unclaimed rock in the middle of the Pacific and, and a bird takes a crap on it, it's like, mine. <laughs> like, <laughs> Maybe, I guess. And, of course, the interpretation of lawful jurisdiction and occupied tended to be pretty liberal. We actually considered doing an episode on just the Guano Islands Act because it's just so strange. Yeah, indeed. And the act has never been repealed, so technically it's still lawful for a U.S. citizen to shit on an island and then claim it and go like Guano Island hunting. And in the 1850s, it definitely incentivized individual American citizens to seize territory on behalf of the U.S. government. Since then, the U.S. has used this act to seize vast swaths of island territories in the Pacific Ocean. In total, the U.S. has claimed about 70 islands under the Guano Islands Act, adding them to a growing empire of island possessions. Interestingly, in 1932, the State Department admitted that it didn't even know what the Guano Islands Act even meant anymore. That's crazy. It is crazy. I mean, two things Two things I found funny there is, one is that the State Department didn't know what it meant, and two, that you say it interestingly. Is that I interestingly? I think it is interesting. Oh, Interestingly? Whatever. I don't know. It sounded so strange to me. You say words strange too. That's true. Dr. Brido. <laughs> but... Gunboat diplomacy doesn't work if you don't have the nitrates to make gunpowder and explosives. Of course, the U.S. wasn't the only power interested in guano. The British Empire, on which the sun literally never set at the time, already had a reliable source of nitrates. Since the 17th century, the British ruled Bengal, and that region of India produced something like 70% of the world's potassium nitrate, better known as saltpeter, the key ingredient in gunpowder. Access to nitrates were key to ongoing colonial projects, and for emerging powers, or those who were late to the colonial game, like the United States and Germany, 
they were really important. After winning its independence, Peru wasn't going to allow itself to be taken over in a colonial resource war, so Peru established a consignment system where private companies run by Peruvian merchants would act as agents to sell guano in Europe or the United States. It was a system that ensured that some of the guano revenue would remain in Peru. Spain was unsatisfied with this arrangement. They clung to the remnants of their empire in the Americas, and in 1864, Spain launched a naval war for control of the Chincha Islands, and by extension, the lucrative guano trade. Even though the War of the Chincha Islands lasted two years, the Spanish Expeditionary Force was no match for the Peruvian forces and their allies in the Pacific world. Every port south of Colombia was closed to the Spanish fleet, and losing to a former colony signaled the start of the Spanish Empire's final decline, which ended when the U.S. took most of the remaining colonial possessions during the Spanish-American-Philippine War in 1898. As an aside, Spain didn't actually recognize Peru's independence until 1879, 58 years after San Martin and Bolivar liberated it. That's like a couple getting divorced and the husband being like, no, we're not divorced. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just refusing to recognize it for 58, for 58 years, years. After, after like she's probably married and has kids with another person. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, like that's not true, right? Because both people have to agree to the divorce. Touche. But you, you get the point. All right, right. All right. So back in the 1850s, the guano age was booming and the revenue was rolling in. But the actual extraction of guano was backbreaking work and the conditions on the island were a living hell. First off, it obviously smelled like shit. My father was a poor Virginia turd miner. The rich turd veins then run up and down the Appalachians. It was a hard life up at the crack of dawn. Dad goes straight down into the hole. But that was life in the turd belt. Actually, a friend of mine, an old roommate, is from Peru and has been to the Chincha Islands, and this is how he described it. It's a very distinctive shit smell. Just imagine what because it, it you know it doesn't rain out there coast of peru so the stench just sort of stays and festers and gets exposed to sunlight constantly and just the smell just sort of regenerates right <laughs> so it's not just the smell of fresh shit it's the shit of like decades ago <laughs> you know what i mean that sounds disgusting yeah gross <laughs> Like, just awful. Yeah. So, the Peruvian guano mining operations employed, and I use that term very loosely, about 600 Chinese coolies to chip away at the ancient towers of bird shit. Now, of course, coolie is a derogatory term used to describe virtual slaves imported from China. These workers had typically been tricked into signing away their lives in predatory contracts. They toiled away under the baking sun, digging bird shit, shoveling it into wheelbarrows, and offloading it onto barges. They worked up to 20 hours a day and six days a week in suffering dust, which was basically particulate bird shit. And it never settled because, as Brian's friend pointed out, it never rained. Think of how fucking awful that must have been. About two-thirds of the workers' meager pay went to room and board, and contracts typically lasted about five years. The conditions were so bad that suicides were common. Yeah, and that's not the only time and place where Chinese workers routinely take their lives because the working conditions are insufferable. Foxconn, Apple. Yep, that's a very good point. Now, in this case, no one knows how many people actually died, because of course they're not keeping records. Right, there was no OSHA at the time. But the Peruvian elite who oversaw operations didn't seem to mind, and they were making a killing off of both the fertilizer that was being mined and the contracts for the Chinese workers that hauled it away. Peru's big problem, other than the fact that it tacitly endorsed or maybe even explicitly encouraged these horrifying working conditions, was that the guano supply was finite, and one day, in the not-too-distant future, it would run out. 
By the late 1850s, guano miners on the Chinches began to hit rock. In 1862, a Peruvian politician and public intellectual named Manuel Pardo published Estudios sobre la Provincia de Oaxaca. That was pretty good. Yeah, that was that, that was actually pretty good. Now, you can also just say studies of the province of Juajua. Right. Okay. <laughs> so Pardo's study, whatever it's called, pointed out that over the previous 15 years since 1847, guano from the Chinches had generated about $150 million in revenue. Wow. And that's $1862. That would be about $3.7 billion today. But he noted that much of that wealth had already been wasted. Part of study recognized that the Peruvian economy, which by this point was almost entirely reliant on the guano trade, was in deep shit. No, it was actually running out of deep shit. In fact, Pardo estimated that Peru had maybe 10 or 12 years of extraction left before it faced resource bankruptcy. Pardo actually became Peru's finance minister in 1865, and he introduced a whole slate of new taxes to supplement declining guano revenue, but widespread opposition to the taxes and an economy in decline led to the government's defeat and the abolishment of those taxes. So Peru was fucked. Well, let me tell you just how fucked Peru actually was. Peruvian state expenditures grew alongside its guano income. They expanded their military, built railroads, and heavily borrowed foreign capital using future resource revenue as collateral. The new government actually contracted all their European guano sales to a single French businessman, which is a pretty sweet deal for that guy, something like six million tons of guano or something. Wow. And that allowed them to borrow in European markets. And that was a bad idea. For decades, the mercantile and political elites shamelessly enriched themselves on the back of guano production and coolie contracts. By the 1870s, the quantity and quality of the guano had precipitously declined and the country was caught in a global economic panic. To make matters worse, Peru's agricultural regions were devastated by a drought. And on top of all that, the U.S. economy, a huge purchaser of Peruvian guano, also faced the Long Depression between 1873 and 1879. The Long Depression reverberated around the world and was clearly felt in Peru. Their resource stocks were in serious decline and foreign markets and capital began to disappear. As Peru's economic situation deteriorated, it became clear that the government had squandered the immense wealth that the guano boom had generated. In the midst of all that chaos, Manuel Pardo, the former finance minister and intellectual we talked about earlier, was elected as Peru's president. His prediction in 1862 had been spot on. Ten years later, in 1872, the country didn't have enough guano revenue to service its foreign debts. Eventually, Pardo nationalized the guano industry, along with the country's stockpile of sodium nitrate in the Atacama Desert, effectively creating a state monopoly for nitrates. But it didn't go as expected, because Chile had other plans for the Atacama. That story next on Real Footnotes, after a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by 1980s Propaganda, featuring an egg, a pan, and a grumpy old man. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Yeah. Why did you vote to legalize weed? Okay, let's turn to Chile. After the collapse of Peru's guano deposits, everyone's attention turned to a substitute known as sodium nitrate, also called Chilean saltpeter. This saltpeter occurs naturally in a crystalline form found only in extraordinarily dry climates like the Atacama Desert, which is located in northern Chile, southern Peru, and at the time, western Bolivia. So for the next part of the story, we're going to focus on Chile's approach to its own nitrate boom, which began in the late 1800s. The question we want to ask is, did Chile manage to escape the boom and bust resource cycle of its northern neighbor Peru? 
And if so, how? The discovery of saltpeter in the Atacama led to a deluge of foreign investment aimed at cheaply extracting it and shipping it across the world. We should point out that the demand for explosives wasn't limited to war. It was also crucial in mining operations and the construction of huge infrastructure projects like transcontinental railroads. Tunnels through mountains don't just blast themselves. By the late 1870s, maintaining control of these saltpeter sources was so strategically and economically important to the region that a war erupted over the Atacama, pitting Beirut <laughs> God <damn it. laughs> that was awesome. Pitting Peru, it's like, no. Nope. Pitting Peru and Bolivia against Chile. That conflict is known as the War of the Pacific. It's hard to overstate the importance of South American nitrates globally during this era. Here's Greg Cushman again. In terms of the international trade in nitrogen-rich substances used not only for fertilizer, but also in the chemical industry, Practically all of the nitrogen in the world, circa 1875, came either from the nitrate fields of the Atacama or came from the Guano Islands of Peru. Remember, at that exact moment, 1875, the Peruvian government created a state nitrate monopoly, and they planned to cushion the loss of their guano deposits by shifting the country's production of nitrates to the Atacama. But the Atacama was a contested space shared by Peru, Bolivia, and Chile. In 1866, Chile and Bolivia signed a treaty that gave a Chilean-British nitrate venture the right to extract saltpeter around the Bolivian port city of Antofagasta, and the company also secured a promise from the Bolivian government that their nitrate operations would remain tax-exempt. This tax promise was the immediate cause of the War of the Pacific. In 1871, a new Bolivian government invalidated the Chilean-British company's contracts, but then in 1873, it renegotiated a new tax-free deal that would last for about 15 years. Right, which is a pretty unstable climate for a company to operate in. And around the same time, Peru's nitrate monopoly was buying up licenses to extract saltpeter in other parts of the Bolivian Atacama. This placed Peru and Chile's nitrate interests in direct competition with one another, and they they touched off a race to the bottom by extracting the saltpeter as quickly as possible. British investors with a stake in both Peru and Chile worried that the conflict might escalate and disrupt the world's nitrate trade. In fact, Peru and Bolivia signed a secret alliance in 1873 to presumably defend themselves against Chile. So when Bolivia imposed a 3% tax on the export of saltpeter in 1878, they had a secret military alliance to back them up, just in case things went sideways. And it did go sideways, but not for the reasons you might suspect. Here's Greg Cushman again. In 1877, the strongest El Nino event of the 19th century occurred, and one of the strongest in the history of the world. And this impacted Bolivia by causing... Uh, one of the severest droughts of the 19th century. Drought not only impacted subsistence agriculture, um, leading to localized famines, leading to people migrating from one part of the country to the other, causing all of these disruptions from refugees, but they also, there wasn't water to run the hydropowered machinery that helped keep the mines going in Potosí and other places like this. So the, the mines closed in Bocorudo and Potosí because of not enough water, and also because all of these refugees were pouring in, trying to get work, looking for food and things like this. So Bolivia was in a tremendous bind, and their response in terms of looking for money and also looking to be able to import food to serve their populace was say, to say, let's establish a, a very small export tax on nitrates on the those go, leaving 
from uh, the port of Antofagasta on our coast. It's a good reminder of the role that seemingly remote environmental factors like El Nino play in global affairs. In any case, the Chilean nitrate company was understandably pissed off. Their operations were supposed to be tax exempt, so they just refused to pay the tax. In 1879, the Bolivians revoked the company's license and confiscated all their property. Chile responded by dispatching an ironclad warship and soldiers to seize the port of Antofagasta, whose population, by the way, was over 90% Chilean, so they actually received a pretty warm welcome. Bolivia quickly declared war on Chile and Peru stepped in to mediate the conflict. But remember, Peru was not a neutral arbiter. The Chileans had actually heard rumors about a secret military agreement, so they asked Peru to clarify its position. When Peru admitted the deal and said that they would honor it, Chile declared war, quite logically, right? Now, the following day, Peru joined Bolivia and declared war on Chile. It was on. Guano mines as a source of nitrate, producing 84% of the world's supply of fertilizer, a $1.4 billion industry. That's what this war is all about. Not quite, Ace, but the war had huge consequences for the global distribution of nitrates. Here's Cushman again discussing his calculations of global nitrate production. I'm looking here at my graph, and so there was no other nitrogen coming from any place in the world except for a very small amount from India. This war put the nitrogen supply of the world in the balance. The outnumbered but far superior and far more professional Chilean army made short work of Bolivia and Peru's disorganized forces, decisively defeating them in May of 1880 at the Battle of Tacna. Within a year, Chile had captured Lima, Peru's capital. The war itself was short, but it took more than three years to negotiate the terms of defeat. In retrospect, Bolivia and Peru's decision to pick a fight with Chile was foolish and had long-term consequences. The terms of the defeat gave a large chunk of southern Peru, the Tarapaca region, to Chile, and Chile also took a huge section of western Bolivia. Bolivia lost its saltpeter stocks and was cut off from the ocean. To this day, it remains a landlocked nation. Now, not everyone thinks that it was Peru and Bolivia who were spoiling for a fight. Greg Cushman offered us another perspective. Chile was in a declining position and national elites in Chile were aware of this problem. So they looked to the north to the nitrates industry and began developing their own nitrates industry in the very far north of Chile also began investing even more in both in terms of workers going up there, but also investors in uh, companies on the coast of Peru and in the coast of Bolivia. So Chile had established some pretty strong interests in this. They also, to make this simple, were looking for any pretext to just go and grab stuff. And uh, Bolivia establishing a tax on this, which they considered illegal, and the British owners and uh, British diplomats who were involved with this were like, yeah, this is a violation of the idea of free trade establishing an export tax. A uh, modern liberal economy can't have this. Chile, you have every right in the world to go and put things back in a lawful state. So Chile invaded Bolivia and Peru took all of the nitrate fields and actually for a while all of the remaining Guano Islands as well leaving Peru and Bolivia with nothing. Chile's territorial acquisitions and dominance of the world nitrate market helped transform it into a regional powerhouse, which it remains today. Between 1879 and 1902, Chile's treasury grew by 900%, ironically, mostly due to the taxes it imposed on newly acquired nitrogen-rich territories. Here, Chile and Peru's national economic experience diverges. As Thomas Hager points out in The Alchemy of the Air, Chile didn't waste its nitrate income. Instead, it invested in modernization, building telephone and electrical systems transportation networks, schools, and a much bigger bureaucratized government. At the same time, it helped build a large professional army and modernized its navy to ensure that those new borders 
stayed permanent. That doesn't mean that everything worked out perfectly in Chile. As with guano, saltpeter extraction was physically taxing and required a huge labor force. Chilean saltpeter is found in a natural cement called caliche, which is buried beneath a layer of dirt and rock. Prospectors would dig deep trenches to find a vein of this caliche before they would begin the more challenging work of actually extracting it. Like on the Chincha Islands, working conditions in the desert were a kind of hell. Heger writes, quote, the men worked six days a week in the blazing sun, blasting holes in the desert, digging and hauling caliche, operating crushers, tending boilers, stoking fires, scraping vats, sacking nitrates, and hoisting 300-pound bags onto railroad cars. And in exchange for that brutal work, saltpeter workers received a form of credit called ficha. Ficha could only be used at the company store, which tied workers to specific sites and companies. These companies effectively minted their own money and then forced their workers to use it. The ficha system benefited the companies in two ways. First, it ensured a steady supply of customers to the company-owned stores, which, of course, meant more profit, right? At the same time, it tied the workers' livelihoods and personal lives to the company. The feature system was a form of indentured servitude, and understandably, it provoked opposition. In the summer of 1907, labor unrest spread throughout Chile's nitrate-producing regions, and laborers in the Atacama Desert refused to work until their demands were addressed, including an end to the feature system. Worried local officials telegraphed the central government in Santiago. The government dispatched General Roberto Silva Renard to crush the peaceful strike. He demanded that the demonstrators disperse, and when they refused, he ordered his troops to open fire. Now, estimates vary on the number killed, but it's somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000 people, which is a pretty big variation. But that makes this the deadliest massacre of labor protesters in world history. And we should take a moment to reflect on that because that's insane. I'm supposing that doesn't include the Bolshevik revolution, which is more complicated than just a labor dispute. Yeah, that was a full-out revolution. But still, how is it possible that we never heard of this story before? It's kind of an indictment of our education, I think. Absolutely, that's a good point. Now, despite Chile's efforts to modernize and diversify its economy while simultaneously crushing this budding labor movement, Fritz Aubert's discovery of a way to make synthetic ammonia had potentially devastating consequences for Chile's economy. But as Greg Cushman reminded us at the beginning of the show, the impact of the Aubert-Bosch process is often overstated. In fact, the outbreak of the First World War ensured a steady demand for nitrates to produce weapons and feed soldiers. Remember, the U.S. was building one of the world's largest hydroelectric dams to power two nitrate plants. But in the meantime, nearly everyone wanted Chilean nitrates. Around the First World War, Chile also began to extract vast deposits of copper found in the Atacama Desert. Now, copper is important for the construction of modern electrical systems because, of course, electricity can travel through copper faster than any other metal, right? Are we sure about that? I'm pretty certain that that's it, right? I think there could be more expensive. I mean, a lot of things use gold wiring. It's just copper, I think, might be the most economical of the good conductors. I thought it was the most efficient uh, of all the conductors. I do not know. You're the scientist. I am not a scientist. I'm you're a historian. The, you're the, his, the historian. <laughs> okay. But if you check out an, any abandoned house, like all those around the outskirts of D.C. What? <laughs> this isn't the wire. She. But we are talking about wires. <laughs> okay, so we just looked it up, and it turns out that silver has the highest thermal conductivity of any element, and copper and gold are actually the best conductor. So we were both kind of right, but copper is less expensive and has apparently a higher resistance to corrosion. Yeah, okay, that, that all makes sense. So, so we're both right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Anyways, you'll notice that abandoned houses and abandoned buildings will have their copper wiring stripped out of it because it's still super valuable. Yeah, so copper allowed Chile to shift away from a predominantly single resource economy based on nitrates to a dual resource economy based on both nitrates and copper. When the Great War ended, it left the Chilean economy 
in a precarious situation. Here's Cushman again. After World War I, the global economy was in chaos. Chile had been making huge amounts of money uh, during the war, as you might imagine. But then the, the end of the war, just the falling demand from that, and also there was a massive disruption of global agriculture during the 1920s. It ended up being one of the major causes for the Great Depression. So there was declining demand uh, in a number of places in the world for fertilizer of any kind. So the Chilean situation was declining from the, from the end of the war. And, they, and there was a growing competition with calcium cyanamide, with ammonium production from coal gas. The gist of this is that all of these different ways of industrially producing nitrogen compounds put Chilean nitrate producers in an economically disadvantageous situation. And then the coming of the Great Depression was the coup de grace. As Greg said, when the Great Depression hit in 1929, Chile was once again devastated by a steep decline in the global demand for its resources. To make matters worse, synthetic nitrates began to flood the global market. Now, unlike Peru, the Chilean nitrate age wasn't actually ended by shortages, but by abundance. As demand for foreign nitrates dropped in the United States and Europe, who were suffering from their own Great Depressions, the Chileans, like the Peruvians before them, initially seemed fucked. According to the World Economic Survey, Chile was hit harder than any other country by the Great Depression. However, the Chilean government's investments in modernization and economic diversification laid a foundation for a macroeconomic shift away from an economy based primarily on natural resource extraction towards textile production. By 1934, Chile's economic output had recovered and then rebounded past its pre-1929 level of production. This was an economic miracle. Well. Wow. It wasn't a miracle. It's actually a really complicated story about Chile introducing strict austerity measures to rebuild international credit, followed by protectionist policies that promoted import substitution, industrialization, and state enterprise. But we obviously don't have time to get into all that, but it's interesting. Yeah, no kidding. We don't have enough time. This yeah. episode's already going to be too yeah. long. Anyways, Peru and Chile seem to have taken very different approaches to the management of their nitrate wealth. Peru overexploited its guano reserves, borrowed money against potential future earnings, and lost most of the Atacama Desert and then eventually went bankrupt. They had no investment or conservation strategy for the future, and greedy elites at home and abroad squandered their wealth. But again, it's never that simple. Here's Cushman. The uh, Peruvian government, like many other governments in the world, went into tremendous debt during the 1860s and the early 1870s in order to fund modernization projects, especially to build railroads. In 1873, the panic caused debtors and those who had uh, loaned the money to uh, become unable to pay off their debts and then uh, be left holding worthless bonds. And it, uh, it was the first Great Depression of modern history. So I was actually reading Greg's book, Guano and the Opening of the Pacific World, and he says that the standard story sees guano as an example of a kind of fictitious wealth that springs up around enclave economies. But he argues that that interpretation ignores many Peruvians who wanted to use this opportunity to build a modern nation state, like Manuel Pardo. We mentioned that Peru used some of the revenue to build railroads and just sort of glossed over it, but think about that for a second. What's the terrain in Peru like? It's not like building a railroad in flat old England or across the prairies. This is the fucking Andes. Bringing the vast interior into regular communication with the coast was a huge step towards modernization. So let's give them some credit. The problem wasn't just greedy elites and poor planning. If that was the case, we'd all be fucked. The problem was over-reliance on a single set of resources. Decentralized and diverse systems are almost always more resilient. That's why we won the Cold War. What? <laughs> That's... 
nonsense. We won the Cold War for a variety of reasons, right. not right. decentralized and diverse systems. <laughs> I mean, that's part of it, I think. But you're right. That's a gross oversimplification. But basically what you're saying is that Peru had geese that shit golden eggs, but only had one basket to put them in. Shit, as far as the federal money's concerned, he's everything. The faucet, the goose. A goose. The one that lays them golden eggs. <laughs> well, okay, sure. Chile, on the other hand, adopted a more forward-thinking strategy. It invested a portion of its income from nitrates, albeit on the backs of exploited workers, into infrastructure, communications, education, and modernizing its military. While industrial nitrates in the Great Depression devastated the Chilean economy, these strategic investments helped it to transition from a resource extraction economy to a more industrialized one. In effect, it diversified. Guano and saltpeter are now relics of the past, but what do you think might happen to petrostates if the oil market collapsed? We'll find out next on Real Footnotes. This episode is brought to you by Peruvian Flute Bands. Wow, that's such cultural music. What, 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 what? Nothing, sorry, I just startled myself. Keeping the world safe from guinea bees. Resource-driven economies like we saw in Peru and Chile offered us a glimpse into a problem that we will certainly face again in the future. Yeah, like we've already said, what the fuck will countries dependent on oil do when their reserves run dry or a reasonable alternative is developed? For the rest of the episode, we're going to consider how Venezuela, the Canadian province of Alberta, and Norway weathered this deep drop in the price of oil from $106 a barrel in June 2014 to only $47 a barrel at the beginning of 2015. In just six months, the price of crude oil dropped more than 50 That's pretty crazy. Yeah, the reason for this is because the Saudis increased their oil production in order to put pressure on Iran. Uh, But also... Is that true? Yeah, because Iran was getting the Iran nuclear deal because of that. They were going to get a flood of cash as part of this lifting of sanctions. But there's another point. They were also trying to drive American fracking companies out of business. Right. If you can make it cheaper than natural gas, it de-incentivizes people to drill more fracking wells, right? Yep. And they were also targeting the tar sands in Canada. So basically there were alternative sources of production, but the Saudis could increase their production and drive the price down and still make enough money while pushing the price below the threshold that those other alternative sources needed in order to be financially viable. Right. So this is also bad for the environment because first there's more oil on the market, which leads to more emissions. But like you said, it also means that fossil fuel alternatives are less competitive because they can't can't compete on price, and that stunts their development. Okay, we're going to focus on sovereign wealth funds, which are basically publicly owned state-run rainy day funds. They are typically financed by taxing the sale of natural resources, and then the revenue is set aside or reinvested. Specifically, we want to look at how some sovereign wealth funds helped cushion the 2015 oil shock, while others failed. Now, most sovereign wealth funds are invested in foreign markets, looking for the highest rates of return and insulating the fund from domestic economic pressures. The idea was first pioneered by Kuwait in 1953, when it was still under British control. Now, Kuwait only officially gained independence in 1961, but they kept control of their sovereign wealth fund. Eventually, other places followed Kuwait's example. In the 1940s, prospectors found oil in Alberta over an area that's roughly the size of England. But that oil is locked up in tar sands, and it takes a lot of energy to extract and refine. As the oil revenue began to flow into the province, the progressive conservative government, led by Peter Lougheed, adapted Kuwait's model and established the Alberta Heritage Fund in 1976. According to Brian Milner and Jeff Lewis, two Canadian journalists, Alberta to 
decide to use a percentage of the revenue generated from its immense oil deposits as a sort of emergency fund. So in times of plenty, the province would pay into the fund, but during economic downturns, Alberta could use the savings to rebalance its budget. The fund's earnings could also be used to invest in other sectors of the province's economy to promote diversification. It's a pretty simple concept. Put money away and then use it to make smart and safe investments. That way, if you unexpectedly lose some income, you're still okay, at least for a while. Yeah, it seems like a pretty practical idea, and that's probably why a bunch of other oil-rich states like Norway, the UAE, Kazakhstan, and many, many others have followed Kuwait and Alberta's lead and established their own sovereign wealth funds. Venezuela, on the other hand. Well, in a way, modern Venezuela is reminiscent of Peru in the 19th century. Venezuela has the world's largest oil reserves, which account for, and this is crazy, about 95% of its exports and 25% of the country's GDP. So unlike Peru's guano stocks, Venezuela's oil reserves are not going to run dry anytime soon. However, both countries' mismanagement and corruption have made the comparison apt. In both cases, resource revenues have created a powerful set of elites while the masses face extreme poverty and suffering. Sound familiar? During Hugo Chavez's presidency from 1999 to 2013, he expanded his party's political control over the state-owned oil monopoly and used its profits to give Venezuelans food, housing subsidies, medical services, and educational programs. Now, all of these are reasonable measures, but there was little immediate return on these investments, except, of course, in his re-election. Okay, I have to disagree a little bit here, because say what you want about Hugo Chavez, and there's plenty of bad things to say about him. Let me add two things. First, he was fairly in Democrat elected three times with about 60% of the vote. So he wasn't a dictator like the current president, Nicolas Maduro, clearly wants to be. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, and Chavez enacted a program of sweeping social reforms aimed at improving the lives of the poor. And as the oil revenue flowed in, it really did improve many Venezuelans' lives. Again, the problem was resilience. Those improvements were ephemeral because they were built on a foundation of sand, or in this case, a foundation of oil. And second, Chavez was pretty goddamn funny. Do you remember him taking the stage at the UN the day after George W. Bush, and then he called Bush the devil? Yesterday, the devil came here, right here. Right here. And it smells of sulfur still today. That was pretty amazing. <laughs> okay, yeah. That is pretty hilarious. I have to agree. He is very funny. <laughs> yeah. There's reasons why he was so popular, right? Yeah. Now, according to Daniel Renwick and Brianna Lee of the Council of Foreign Relations... I think it's Danielle. Danielle. Okay, whatever. <laughs> As oil prices doubled between 2005 and 2012, Venezuela's GDP grew at an average of 5% annually, and that's huge. We want to know what happened to Venezuela post-Chavez when the price of oil collapsed in 2015. Its economy went into a freefall, resulting in massive food and medicine shortages, high crime rates, social unrest, and ultimately, political repression. As the situation deteriorated, Venezuela's oil production dropped by 11% between 2015 and 2016, so the state had even less revenue. That second drop in production, according to Renwick and Lee, Danielle Renwick, I went with, <laughs> was due to the fact that the state-run oil company is corrupt and grossly mismanaged. Venezuela's economy contracted by 10%. 10%? That's insane. Do you know how much wealth is lost in that? Approximately 10% of it. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> Anyways, in early 2017, the New York Times reported that inflation had reached 900%. So what wealth you may have had was actually evaporating as well because of the inflation of prices. Yeah, that's a Weimar Germany craziness. Anyways, so 76% of Venezuelans now live below the poverty line and the country's debt was increasing while its financial reserves were dwindling. This is a terrible economic situation. In 
March of 2017, President Nicolas Maduro conspired with the Supreme Court to dissolve the National Assembly, which is mostly dominated by his political opponents. That move was denounced as a kind of self-coup, just like Park Chung-hee in our episode about fan death. Protests erupted around the country, and on April 1st, the Supreme Court actually reversed its decision and reinstated the National Assembly. But protests continued throughout the country. Elections were held in July, but the anti-Maduro forces boycotted them, so almost no one voted. The government claimed that the turnout was about 43%, but leaked government documents put the turnout at actually 11%, which is abysmal. Even a state-owned oil company admitted to manufacturing fraudulent ballots. So the results were internationally condemned and the U.S. imposed personal sanctions on President Maduro. According to The Economist, Venezuela actually established a sovereign wealth fund in 1998 called the, I guess it's El Fondo. Uh, This is going to be funny. (laughs) El Fondo de Estabilización Macroeconomico, or FEM, which is what we're going to call it from now on for the rest of this paragraph. Uh, But the fund quickly became a joke. The Chavez government put money into it for the first few years, but it was quickly drawn down. And the fund has been inactive since 2003. They also stopped updating their website in 2003. So if you want to remember what the internet looked like 15 years ago, check it out. bcv.org.ve. Not dot. Slash F-I- E-M slash F-I-E-M dot H-T-M. You know what? We should just tweet that out. Yeah, we probably should. But it, it kind of reminds me of Cuba. It's like you're going back in time and it, it's it's totally a relic. Yeah. It reminds me of Angel Fire from high school or GeoCities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyways, anyways. So the economist calculated that if Venezuela had invested 10% of its oil revenues into its sovereign wealth fund between 2007 and 2012 and earned about a 5% return on its investment, it would have banked about $26 billion into the fund. Now, with time, that leads to some pretty serious savings. If Venezuela had continued to add about a billion dollars of oil revenue a year, which is a pretty conservative amount, the economist said that the fund would have reached $50 billion by 2020 and $92 billion by 2030. However, if the government set aside more money, so like $5 billion a year, the fund would have grown to a whopping $210 billion by 2030. Right. I mean, so the point is, is that a properly funded sovereign wealth fund may have actually helped Venezuela weather the oil shock. But truthfully, that country has far more systemic problems. Venezuela is clearly a worst case scenario. Now let's turn to Canada, eh? All right. We we already mentioned that the Canadian province of Alberta established one of the earliest sovereign wealth funds called the Heritage Fund in 1976. However, the provincial government stopped contributing to it in the mid-1980s. Another occasion when the price of oil collapsed, don't you know? All right, enough. (laughs) All right, I'll stop, I'll stop. Okay. So Alberta never actually adequately rebuilt its holdings, and a generation of conservative governments continued to siphon off the lion's share of the fund's income to give Alberta and some pretty sweet perks. Not Nickelback. That wasn't one of the perks. No, that is definitely not a perk. Yeah, huge drawback of living in Alberta. (laughs) Just the fact that they're associated with them. (laughs) Yeah, anyways. So... In 2014, the fund was valued at about $17.9 billion. That year, the fund grew by $1.7 billion, but the Alberta government withdrew one5 of that. That's a lot of math, eh? So they had, what, 
0.2 billion left over from the income. 200 grand. Uh, no, so 200 no, million. 200 million. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, so unlike Peru and to be honest, probably Venezuela, Alberta's politicians weren't explicitly lining their own pockets, but its residents paid no sales tax, no payroll taxes, and didn't have to pay for healthcare premiums. No healthcare premiums? Don't those rascally Canadians have socialist commie care? Of course we do. But Alberta also provides its seniors with free premium Blue Cross insurance for health-related services not covered by the government. It's sort of a hybrid American-Canadian style system, which I actually think describes Alberta pretty well. Yeah, that's... That's actually pretty apt. Yeah. Anyways, given all these benefits that their government's giving them, who wouldn't vote for the conservatives except for, of course, me? Well, as it turns out, uh, a lot of people wouldn't vote conservative because the 2015 oil shock set off a regional economic crisis and the conservatives didn't have a fully funded sovereign wealth fund to help bail them out. Albertan voters finally kicked out the province's deeply entrenched government after 43 consecutive years in office. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And replaced it with the new Democratic Party or the NDP, which is sort of comparable to a European-style socialist party. It's a pretty incredible swing. The NDP promised to start reinvesting in the Heritage Fund. However, oil prices remain low and the new government is running budget deficits, so it's clearly not a political priority right now. The point is, if Alberta's Heritage Fund had been financed as it was originally intended, the province wouldn't have needed to go as far into debt to bolster the economy between 2015 and 2017. This scenario isn't nearly as bad as the Venezuelan case, but it's not as good as Norway's. In 1990, Norway decided to establish a sovereign wealth fund directly modeled on Alberta's, but the Norwegians took it very seriously and by most measures did it right. In just 27 years, Norway has built the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world with holdings valued at over $1 trillion. That's a fucking ton. Yeah, the Norwegian fund owns an astonishing 1.3% of the global equity market. That gives a very sparsely populated Scandinavian country a very comfortable cushion in the event of an economic crisis. It works out to about $192,000 per Norwegian, which is mind-boggling. So... That also means, though, that a small Scandinavian country has vastly disproportionate influence in global markets, and I don't know how great of a thing that is. In 2017, Norway's national budget was roughly $400 billion annually, which means that the government with its sovereign wealth fund could finance the entire government for like two and a half years. Like, that's, that's absolutely insane. The idea behind Norway's fund is simple. According to the fund's website, it was set up to give the government room for maneuver in fiscal policy should oil prices drop or the mainland economy contract. It also served as a tool to manage the financial challenges of an aging population and an expected drop in petroleum revenue. The fund's current rules prevent the government from withdrawing more than 4% in a typical fiscal year, a number that matches its expected annual average return. In 2016, that was about $34 billion, so we're not talking about chump change here. Yeah, and that 4% rule isn't fixed in stone. For example, Trond Grande, <laughs> who's a salad at Taco Bell... <laughs> yeah, I, I doubt that is given that he is Norwegian, that his last name is pronounced Grande. Right. But his dad could be Spanish. Who knows? Who knows, right? So, yeah, it, it also, it makes him sound like a Norwegian porn star. Trond Grande. Anyway, he's not, a, he's not a porn star. He's the deputy chief executive officer for Norges Bank Investment Management, which actually helps manage the fund. So Trond Grande pointed out that during the 2008 financial crisis, Norway pulled out more than 4% to stabilize its economy. You know, use it for its exact purpose, like an emergency fund? Well, in this case, the Norwegian fund acted as a kind of buffer, which offset fluctuations in the global economy. We'll compare these cases, but first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Cows on Crack. WMJ, right chair. WMD, right chair, right chair. 
Right chair. Yo. Right chair, right chair. I hear the uh, WMD is the bomb. So we have three different cases here that took different approaches to sovereign wealth funds. Venezuela originally set one up, but failed to finance it properly. It tacitly expected that oil prices would continue to rise and that it could buy political support with social benefits. But without growing oil revenue, these social reforms were ephemeral. The drop in oil prices left Venezuela vulnerable, and so the 2015 crisis resulted in chaos and near dictatorship. Alberta also failed to properly finance the Heritage Fund. The conservative government seemed more concerned with lowering taxes than planning for the future. And when the price of oil dropped, the government wasn't caught with its hand in the cookie jar because it already ate most of the cookies and gave the baker, the jar maker, and just about everybody else a tax break. By contrast, Norway established a sovereign wealth fund, funded it properly, and only drew on it in times of economic necessity. So this raises an important question. Should the governments of resource-based economies establish sovereign wealth funds along the Norwegian model? Now, as usual, Brian and I don't exactly agree. Brian was very excited about sovereign wealth funds when we started putting this episode together. And I still am. But I was a bit more circumspect. I think sovereign wealth funds are a good idea, but I certainly don't think they're a silver bullet. And if we're specifically talking about the Norway example, I think that they happen to have the luxury of offshoring their investment. And as an aside, that number from earlier, 1.3% of the global equity market, that really hit me. I mean, it's just another reminder of how disproportionately the world world's wealth is distributed. But what was I saying? Right. The uh, offshoring of resource wealth makes those funds unavailable to local economies that might need the capital to promote diversification. First of all, not all sovereign wealth funds explicitly invest offshore. For example, Alberta. Personally, I agree with investing locally so long as it does not invest in the industry that it is reliant on for the royalties. So the Heritage Fund shouldn't invest in the Alberta tar sands because the point is to protect it against an economic shock. But you have to admit that there is value in having a multi-billion dollar fund that can be used during times of economic stress like Norway's. Right. Well, of course there's value in it. I just don't think uh, it's the right answer in every situation or that everywhere has the luxury of keeping billions of dollars aside just in case. I don't know. I do think that that's actually a good idea. It's 1%. I guess that could go for other programs that are currently in place, but as soon as an economic downturn happens, they're totally fucked. No, I'm saying there's a value in it, right? But it's it depends on if it's available. I don't know, and I'm just saying I don't know if it's the right thing in every situation. Okay, but let me use an analogy. My wife and I set aside six months of worth of living expenses as an emergency fund in order to weather a financial storm like one of us and let's be honest, me, <laughs> losing their job. We service our debts, but building an emergency fund has always been a financial priority for us. And once it is flush, we could then turn our attention to repaying debts, buying a house or car, investing in stocks, going on a vacation, etc. Because I believe investing on going on a vacation is an important one. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with saving a little while still paying down a debt. And I see a sovereign wealth fund in the same light. Okay, well, I, I, despite the con the actual content of that, I mean, it's sort of a classic mistake here, right? National budgets aren't household budgets. That's a kind of false equivalency that usually shows up in conservative arguments about deficit spending. Uh-oh. Right? It's sort of, <laughs> yeah, it's sort of common nonsense. Do you see what I did there? I combined common sense and nonsense into something. You know, nice. It's like, kind of like a portmanteau. Anyway, and incidentally, the idea that the government should be run like a business is also nonsense. You actually don't want the government and business to have the same same priorities or objectives or incentives. That's fucking crazy. Anyway, back to you and your wife. Okay. You don't have the ability to print money 
and inflate prices. Yeah. Right? You aren't responsible for the macroeconomic well-being of markets that are made up of millions and millions of citizen consumers. I hope they're not running it like you run your bank account. Otherwise, we're all fucked. So, you know, let's not get trapped in facile analogies. Okay, but I'm not talking about, like, that the government should do exactly what we're doing. I'm saying that we set aside money in the event of a problem, like an economic crisis. Right. I know it's common sense, right? I get that. Yeah. I'm just saying that, like, let's not make the mistake of thinking that national budgets and household budgets operate in the same way. Okay. Now, let me give you an actual example of a situation where a properly funded sovereign wealth fund would have been really valuable. Okay. So a couple of months ago, I was in Iraqi Kurdistan, and I asked the Kurds specifically why they hadn't financed a sovereign wealth fund that had been on the books for several years, because they had passed a law approving it, but then didn't put any money into it. Hmm. So just like Peru, the Kurds had been paid in advance based on the projected earnings. But they needed that money to finance the running of the government. So in retrospect, now that Iraq seized the Kurds' oil-producing region around Kirkuk, properly financing that sovereign wealth fund might not have been such a bad idea after all. Okay, you're right. There's a lesson in there, and I don't really know the particulars of the Kurdish situation. But I'm just not sure that a sovereign wealth fund is that silver bullet for their problems either. I'm always skeptical of one-size-fits-all solutions. Like I said earlier, decentralized approaches are almost always more resilient. A sovereign wealth fund is a great part of a portfolio of options to make resource-driven economies more resilient, but as we've seen, they're not always designed perfectly. In some cases, the incentives might actually encourage over-exploitation. If, like, say, the Alaskan Permanent Fund, which is Alaska Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, the citizens actually receive a yearly portion of the dividends, then political pressure could lead to short-term or short-sighted reductions in the capital stock, which would temporarily increase those dividends but undermine conservation efforts. So what I'm saying is basically that the particulars really matter. And I don't know enough about the Kurdish example to confidently say much about it, except like everything else, it'll have unintended consequences. Maybe they should look at the Norwegian model, but maybe that doesn't suit the context or their needs. I'm all for the idea of sovereign wealth funds, but it's not a panacea for every economic situation. And there is no one size fits all solution because baseline conditions differ. In some cases, resource revenue would be better reinvested in local infrastructure and modernization combined with other plans to raise the local standard of living. And in other cases, like Norway, maybe it's safer invested abroad, but Norway already has an extremely high standard of living. So we're sitting here in the overdeveloped world, and I don't want to presume to tell developing communities that they should put their wealth in international markets instead of trying to directly improve their people's lives. You made some good points. And yes, sovereign wealth funds aren't just a one-size-fits-all solution to any economic problem. You do need multiple options available to it, but it's definitely a viable tool available to governments that can genuinely help them weather financial storms and prevent them from taking on mass amounts of debt, which is exactly what happened to a lot of countries during the Great Recession in 2007 to 2009, and also after the drop in oil prices from 2014 to 2015. Well, what do you guys think? Let us know at Real Footnotes. Once again, it's time to tell something to go fuck itself. iCloud notifications. They just won't stop. And there doesn't seem to be a simple way to dismiss them. Hey, Apple, I'm not upgrading because there's a whole bunch of free storage services. In fact, we use Google Drive for this podcast. Yeah, we're running out of storage all the time. Yeah, okay, stop undermining me, Brian. I don't mean to complain about the miracle of digital storage, but if it doesn't stop soon... 
I'm going to straight up murder Steve Jobs. Oh, Jeff, I've got some terrible news for you. Steve Jobs is dead. Well, I guess he's exploiting Chinese workers in heaven now. <laughs> hey, everyone, don't forget that that selfie and podcast machine that you're using right now also manufactures enormous amounts of suffering abroad. Jeff, 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 Jeff. This is just too depressing. Hard dose of reality. So to the cloud, like Microsoft. All right. You realize that that's just a cloud of data pushing itself wirelessly through different devices. <laughs> now who sounds big? So iCloud notifications, go fuck yourself. Thanks for listening to our episode. And a very special thanks to Greg Cushman for his time. Remember to check out his book, Guano and the Opening of the Pacific World, available from Cambridge University Press. Also, check out Thomas Hager's The Alchemy of the Air from Broadway Books. I know we plugged it last episode, but it deserves an encore because it was actually really helpful. Oh, and I want to thank my friend Arend who helped us virtually smell the shit with his description of the Chincha Islands. As always, check out our website, realfootnotes.com, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Real Footnotes. Remember to rate and review us on iTunes and listen to our mini-sodes where we read your reviews or your comments about the show and announce our upcoming topics. And finally, Greg told us one last really interesting story about conservation in Peru in the aftermath of the guano boom. During World War One, the guano industry was completely redirected to serve the Peruvian economy. The Peruvian government, in collaboration with agribusiness, created a company to manage the guano islands and protect the guano bird with the, the goal of enabling them to reproduce and to grow in numbers so that there would be more and more bird crap every year that could be used as fertilizer locally in Peru. This was tremendously successful and the bird population increased by a factor of five from less than 10 million to over 50 million by the 1950s. Peru, by the time we get to 1955-56, was producing almost 300,000 metric tons of guano every single year. All in all, it was was an amazing success story in terms of using nature protection to promote industrial and agricultural development. What a great story. It's always nice to end on a positive note. Indeed. And we'll see you next time in the margins. (laughs) 